1: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world, and helps us understand the
2: political developments unfolding around us.
0: Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Brought to you by 3CAR, 855 AM on your dial, and it's being presented today by Jacob Angwafa and Rob Zoki.
3: Good morning to listeners, uh, I'm Rob, and uh, we'll just start off by making sure that people are aware that 3CR is being broadcast from the land of Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, peoples of the Kulin Nation. And we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners, caretakers and custodians of this land. The land was stolen, taken by brute force and sovereignty was never ceded. So we join in solidarity with First Nations people's struggle for justice. This uh, has always been and will always be Aboriginal land.
0: Thanks for that, um, Rob. Now... I'll go and um just to give a bit of a rundown of what we have up um coming up on the program we're going to be to start off um for the first part of the program we're actually going to have um a bit of um some news discussion with possibly also some songs in between there's actually quite a lot that has actually happened in politics in the past week in fact probably one of the observation i make we're currently in december the 15th and usually this is where politics kind of winds down, and this is also tends to be when, you know, some of us go a bit into holiday mode. In fact, we're going to probably continue to have another live program next Friday when we would usually have go into summer programming. But I think, you know, there's still, because of the Palestine movement, you know, things are just, you know, really just happening every week. Now, the first thing I'd like to... The first kind of news story I want to sort of highlight is there has been a bit of a there has been a bit of a shift in the past week from the Australian and New Zealand and Canadian government now this is not really I don't want to exaggerate this this is not a radical shift in any means but basically there was a joint statement where Australia New Zealand and Canada um, actually broke away from the usual sort of u.s and britain position and they did vote for a resolution um in the u.n um i um, calling for an immediate ceasefire now possibly a few things to kind of unpack with this is uh the australian government has tried to sort of make it really clear that you know they can they've Frame the whole statement, their whole kind of media statement around condemning, um, Hamas's, um, terror attacks on Israel. Um, they've also coached it into, well, we recognize Israel's right to exist and a right to defend itself. But they, of course, they also play this sort of card of, you know, Israel must respect international humanitarian law. Now, they also sort of say we remain deeply concerned by the scale of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and ongoing risks to all Palestinian civilians. And of course they also call about things around humanitarian access, etc. Now the biggest problem with this is they're basically trying to they're trying to ignore I think the positive thing about this is it's clear that those the mass protests that are happening every week are clearly having an impact. The government is fueling the pressure from those massive protests. They're wanting to, they want to make some kind of acknowledgement of, or nod to those protests. But at the same time, they also want to try and have, it's a bit, I think it's a bit appalling in a lot of ways. They basically want to kind of maintain friendly and supportive relations with the perpetrators of genocide, which is in this case, Israel. So it's sort of like they're trying to have um, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, in voting for this um, resolution, which in a sense is a bit of a powerless resolution. But I think it is notable that you know the um, that Australia, New Zealand, and Canada didn't actually vote for the U.S. because the United States is one of the ten countries uh, that voted against uh, this this UN motion.
3: Yeah, uh, Jacob, look, I mean, you're absolutely right about uh, the mass protests around the world. Um, The numbers, I've been looking into this uh, as, as carefully as I can because there's so many protests I don't even have time to check out um all the countries but uh, th- even the ones in the US the last place you would expect that had uh, uh that would have mass protests it's it's really impressive um even UK France these are places you wouldn't expect such protests against Israel and then there are the obvious countries where you you definitely would ec- expect it especially in the Arab world uh in terms of the Australian situation um the ALP uh, changing their position, well, you know, I don't know what to make of that. On the one hand, yes, you know, it shows that they're under pressure not only from the protests, they're uh, under pressure, Albo and, and Penny Wong, are uh, un- under pressure from their backbenchers because a lot of the ALP backbenchers are... Copping a lot of flack from their constituencies And these are the people who are voting them in These are the people that they have to deal with uh, on the ground And uh, I, I don't know the exact statistics But there are really a, a, a remarkably uh, large number of ALP backbenchers That are putting a lot of pressure on Albo and Wong um, The relationship to Israel though Well that's, I mean that's, thats what. what can I say It's the holy of holies isn't it um, in the end, uh, the ALP is uh, a party committed to capitalism, a party committed to the world order of imperialism. That is not going to change. What we can only hope for is uh, mass defections uh, to some much more revolutionary socialist uh, alternative. Yeah, so um, that's... Um, Uh, various contradictions there that that are playing themselves out and are doing so on a week-by-week basis.
0: Yeah, and I think possibly the other thing to note is, I mean, I think we need also be clear, I think we should also be politically clear about what we're demanding of the Labor government because, in a sense, the Labor government is conceding to a particular kind of pressure. So, you know, the Albanese government very much needs to call publicly for an um, unilateral and permanent, not this, we don't need this language of sustainable... Um, we need them to say we need a permanent ceasefire by Israel, um, and in fact it is um, it is kind of important in terms of um, making that demand because most uh, the kind of counter argument that the Zionists and the lib- and the um, the liberal capitalists are sort of making to the ceasefire demand is they're sort of trying to say well you know a ceasefire will just benefit Hamas like no the reality is fifty thousand. Over 20,000 Palestinians have been murdered in cold blood by the Israeli, um, by Israel and the IDF. We need a permanent ceasefire. That needs to end. And of course, we, at the same time, the countries like the United States, who are sort of, you know, they're trying to also, they're also playing a bit of a game with trying to play kind of both sides as well. They're the ones also supplying military aid to Israel, which is, in a sense. So we need to actually demand that we end all military supplies to Israel. And of course, the, um, going back to the United, the role of the United States, Australia needs to play, put meaningful pressure on the U S to demand that Israel ends the genocide. So that's, um, that's, I think, that's, I think what, what, um, um, the gist of it. And, um, I think, you know, I, I think that we have to keep protesting and, um, we can't stop. And in fact, the protests actually for, for Palestine are going to continue on, um, throughout, um, through, um, throughout the holidays. So there will be, there will be a Sunday protest at 12 p.m., um, at the state library. And then there'll be two more, um, there'll be an, um, and it will keep going until a permanent ceasefire is called. Um, so yeah, I think we have to continue making these protests big. Um, but yeah, I might go, I'll go play a quick announcement. And um, maybe we'll go on to um, playing, a, playing a song to, um, ra- um, to get, uh, get us started on the day. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
4: We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue.
2: Black fella, white fella It doesn't matter what you colour
4: Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio And 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash I would suggest 3 cr is a bloody good place to start What you
2: name is we got the hell lots of changes we need more brothers if
0: we make it all right you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR cr 855 AM and me and Rob were actually just having a bit of a discussion about the recent uh announcement that um Australia you know joint statement with New Zealand and Canada called for a Gaza ceasefire but we also spoke had a bit of a critical discussion in questioning the inadequacies of the core from from the Australian government. Um, but now I think it will be actually time to play a song. Now, this is actually a song we've uh, probably played before, but it's actually a very popular song in a lot of ways. Um, it's been a very good anthem in terms of the Palestine movement, and it's by Low Key. Um, and the song is Palestine Will Never Die. Um, and um, we'll, play, we'll play this for the next five minutes and 43 seconds. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
2: وقف الطفل وحده والليالي ورصاص من حوله وجنود وقف الطفل والحجارة أكوام وعيناه عزمة وصمود وعيناه عزمة وصمود
5: He's found in a mountain of parts Netanyahu told you just another child of the dark, clear it's going to take much more than thousands to march, more than a speech, more than a poem, more than a track of music, going to take more than a sit down with Basim Yusuf, even bringing back ambassadors is an atlas, useless long as you pump oil for Apaches and the tanks they're using, freedom just beyond reach, for people you cannot see, he's wheezing and cannot breathe, and screaming through the concrete, looking for his four children, the bombs leave structures that I wouldn't want to call buildings. my fingers pointed at this government You all killed him Tell me that you wouldn't take up arms If those were your children Let me make the factor clear The bombs were manufactured here And they want to land the stairs Because of natural gas in there Feel death in the atmosphere While we hapless stand and stare And a little boy begs for his brother's strand of hair Truth is I don't know how anyone can live After digging for their dead kids Buried under bricks Israel is a terror state Terrorists that terrorize I testify my television television, I'm telling lies This is not a war it is systematic genocide, but whatever they try, Palestine will never die. Palestine, they're not prepared to face the pain, so they're scared to say your name.
2: Palestine,
5: they're not prepared to face the pain, so they're scared to say your name.
2: Palestine,
5: they're not prepared to face the pain, so they're scared to say your name.
2: Palestine,
5: they're not prepared to face the pain, so they're scared to say your name. Medics is hurting, the panic spread in hospitals Where the doctors do C-sections, no anaesthetics The pressure is manifesting, humanity stands connected Masses seem apathetic and actually just accept it When our grandchildren ask us, what did we do to stop it? I'm determined to say, I did more than make music on it That's why we shut down arms factories, you can try stopping us Palestine action's the opposite of white phosphorus We tell them on the television, but they never listen Tell Piers Morgan that resistance isn't terrorism They want them fled or missing Death or prison, endless killing. I seen a father hold his baby up; the head was missing. Imagine demolition of home where your parents live living. Kings won't say a thing, but at least we know the Yemen's with them. Ethnic cleansing, it ain't hard to see the stages. But gaza is a graveyard of the invaders. Ears close to the savagery, clear though when there's clarity. The journalists and doctors are here. heroes of humanity. As sordid and as gory as this story is, for now they're depopulating gaza for Bengurians can now. Israel is a terror state. Terrorists. I testify my television, televise, I'm telling lies This is not a war, it is systematic genocide But whatever they try Palestine will never die
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM, and you're just listening to Low Key, Palestine Will Never Die. Anyway, we'll move on to some news from the pages of Green Left, including a number of news reports. But um, Rob had a, just a number of comments to kind of make following a, a bit of our discussion on the U around um, Australia, um, Canada, and New Zealand voting for a ceasefire resolution at the UN at a United Nations meeting.
3: Yeah, Jacob, I mean, there's too many issues to discuss, you know. I always worry that we won't, you know, be able to fill the one and a half hours of this program, but I think we probably could fill two and a half hours. So um, the call is to end military supplies to Israel. Um, it's funny because Israel um, uh, has a, a, a whole roster of military equipment that they sell around the world, but Australia... Um, sends military supplies and, of course, does the surveillance, you know, from Pine Gap and all this kind of stuff. So one of the key demands of all the protests, these very large protests, uh, even here in Australia, is to end military supplies to Israel because, I mean, that's just being complicit in... One, well, I, I think it's the most horrendous genocide that I can think of uh, in the last 200 years. I mean, even the Nazis were you know, not as bad as this. So uh, Jacob mentioned the possibility of protests. And, you know, here in Australia, here we are in holiday season and all of that. And um, I've already noticed that the numbers on the protests are... Declining, but they're still pretty big, you know, 30,000, 40,000 in Melbourne uh, and not quite as much in Sydney but still very significant. So uh, I wanted to say, because I've been on the far left for 33 years and I, I know that it's not necessarily the case that the protests will die down in the period between the 23rd of December and New Year's Day. And, and uh, I remember back in 1990-1991 when the second Gulf War was just about to happen, there were protests during that period. Um, They were not so big, but they were there. And then when um, Iraq invaded Kuwait, at the very start of the year, the protest in Melbourne was... Oh, I think it was a um, hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand, something like that. And I remember being so excited at the time because I went to my first socialist meeting, and there were so many people there. And the the activism and the um, grassroots and on the ground protests kept on going for you know a, a good two months or so. And and so I I don't want to give up on the you know the idea of protesting during that holiday period. Uh, I don't know, I might go for a trip to Bendigo on, on one day or something, but, like, I'm still going to keep my eye on what's happening uh, outside Parliament House, Sydney Road, what have you. Um, so that's um, a definite possibility, and, it, and a lot depends on, well, what, what the hell is Netanyahu going to do? Can't predict that one. That's maybe uh, another discussion point for another time. But anyway, Jacob, let's get back to... Um, Boris Kagalitsky, I'm very keen to hear, because he's finally been freed after all this, uh, the, the crap that he's gone through. So tell us about
0: it. Yeah, so this is drawn from a news report that was reported in Green Left and just published um, on De- in December the 13th. Um, but some of our listeners are possibly aware that um Boris Kagalisky, who is quite a prominent um he's actually quite a prominent um Russian Marxist. He's actually done quite a lot of um writings. Um he's also been very critical, um, in fact has spoken out very directly against uh Russia's um invasion of, of Ukraine. And um as a result, he, um, he had actually been, uh, detained and imprisoned by, um, by the Russian state. Now, this is a bit of a positive kind of news story, but he has actually been, um, released where, and, um, he's been in custody since, um, July where he was detained on charges of justifying terrorism over comments he made in a since deleted YouTube video and on his Telegram channel in October 2022 regarding the bombing of the Crimea bridge. Now, the, um, the after a speedy trial, trial that lasted only like two days, the court found Kalagulisky guilty, but only required him to pay a fine of like six hundred thousand, which is about six six thousand, um, like uh, six hundred thousand rupees, um, which is uh, about six six hundred. US dollar, in US dollars is really in the realm of over $6,000. And I think he also got banned, for, he was also banned from editing any media outlet or webpage for two years. And he's actually, uh, he's actually run a number of media publications, which have, you know, published a lot of important, you know, articles in the, in terms of the Russian left. Um, but yeah, I guess the good, the positive thing is, you know, a broad international solidarity movement developed, calling for his freedom and the release of all political pr- prisoners in Russia. And, you know the fact that he has been released, I think, is a positive sign of the pressure um, that the that the international solidarity campaign um, um, developed on. And I think, you know, it also there's also something to be said. I mean, Boris Karoliski kind of admits that you know he's quite a privileged in this sense because he has a prominent following, uh, there are people around him. But there's a lot of people, you know. There are people in Russia who are speaking out, but in like small towns, don't really have much kind of political connections that are, you know, are run that, who are being heavily persecuted and there's possibly not much prospects of them release. In fact, a lot of people don't even know, um, that they, these people, that they're, pe- these people imprisoned for speaking out against, um, the war, um, and, and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, I think, a, I think a pretty positive kind of news story in terms of the, in terms of the international solidarity. But yeah, Rob, did you have any comments you want to add to that?
3: Gee, um, well, I've, uh, I, I do remember uh, Kagaliski from quite a long time ago. Didn't didn't he come to Australia?
0: Yes, he's yeah. he's come to Australia before. In fact, I think Green left, and the DSP might have brought him yes. down in the in the nineties at some point. Um, and I do re- recall that some comrades I know who've been sort of active in that space have been um, who ha- have been active for a while have met him
3: yeah well, maybe uh, a slight diversion, but it's still you know relevant. the situation uh today um, between Russia and ukraine um and uh, uh, has has boris uh, uh commented at all on the, U- the Ukrainian situation that you know of.
0: Oh, Boris Kardigalski. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's had a very clear position on yes. Ukraine, which is that he opposes the war. He thinks yes. Russia is, um, terrible for, um, during the region. But yeah, I don't have any more kind yeah. of like comments. Yeah,
3: I've, I've tried to follow as much as I can there. Uh, and, um, like, um, well, you know, Russia is the is the big enemy and the big aggressor here, and Putin is just, you know, much more disgusting. I mean, I'm not, you know, greatly enamoured of Tzemlinsky either, because I don't think that he's going to deliver very much for workers. But um, I just wonder, you know, it's a slight diversion, but it, it may be relevant to Karelitsky. Um, What do you think, Jacob, uh, uh, are the possibilities of uh, worker unity between uh, Russian workers and uh ukrainian workers because i know there have been very small links but not enough what do
0: Hmm. you think i mean the one of the policy one of the big sort of issues about that and and in fact this is not like the most well-informed opinion but i guess one of the biggest challenges for that is i guess russia's invasion of ukraine um is possibly going to make that much more sort of unlikely in the yeah. future, not obviously we want to strive for that kind of unity, but because there's a currently, you know, the fact that currently Russia is sort of invading Ukraine makes that, uh, makes that very difficult. But also one of the challenges, and this is obviously one of the contexts of, of the war is that, you know, through both, um, cause I guess prior to the kind of maiden sort of revolt in, in 2014, you know, Russia and Ukraine, you know, were in a sense, like prior to the fact, prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, Russia and Ukraine were actually quite, you know, united sort of countries in a lot of ways. And um, now, and of course, they were quite integrated within each other. Now, because of all the events from the dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, to the 2014 Soviet Union, so they've actually been gradually sort of separated to the point where there's an element of, anti-Ukraine racism in Russia, mm. but also mm. anti-Russian racism mm. in, in Ukraine. So mm. there's the, yeah, there's that sort of, um, there's sort of that sentiment that will, um, the kind of our Ukraine identity has actually been quite shifted in this sort of time, but also the Russian identity has also been the Russian identity and what it means to be Russian in Ukraine has also shifted. So it's sort of like that's where you get the complexity of things like the, um, the establishment of the Donbass and, also, Crimea, but of course the war has actually made all those things, far, those dynamics far worse. Yeah, that's, um, that's, I guess, my sort of um, brief, that, my comment on that.
3: <laughs> yeah, um, it seems a very geographical thing because, you know, those who, uh, live in the border regions and have to, or, you know, do, do identify as either Russian or Ukrainian, but it just, um, makes that a, a very sort of fluid situation so that's one thing but uh, I wanted to say that um, on the one hand there is an economic disparity on the other hand there is a military or nuclear disparity and just to you know spell out what that means the Ukrainian economy is doing way way better than the Russian economy um the way that uh, the Ukrainian economy has developed um they uh, and as we know they're, they're seeking uh to look more towards uh NATO towards the west because i think that they can see that they're going to get uh much more economic benefit out of that but on the other hand there's Russia that's got this long lasting long standing nuclear and military capacity so If something really blows up there, and who knows? You know, it all seems like it's just on on a knife edge and anything could happen. And these two factors, the economic disparity with the Ukraine... ...being more successful and the nuclear disparity with Russia still holding on to this, you know, Soviet-era stuff that goes way back to the Stalin years, you know, you just really wonder what's going to happen there. And, um, well, I, I, I keep trying to follow as much as I can, but, you know, a, a lot of it is speculation and, you know, the system of capitalism is such that, you know, you really can't predict. I mean, you know, it's a highly unstable system all over the world and you just don't know how it's going to collapse. I mean, people uh, leading up to World War I, how would they ever have known that the Sarajevo yeah. assassination was going to lead to, what was it, four years of bloodshed throughout the world? Just, you know, you're waiting for this tipping point, and then we as socialists have to be ready for it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, thanks for that, Rob. Um, I might go play a quick announcement. You're, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free cr 855 AM.
6: What's taking place in Palestine
0: is horrendous The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16 year siege Are now facing the biggest attacks ever
6: mounted against them This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved Listen
4: in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast.
6: Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of
0: 3CR. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Now I think it's uh, just a bit of a time to play another song to have a bit of a break from some news, and then we'll go on to give it a bit of a report on Comp Twenty Eight. Um, but I'll go. I thought I'd play the song "Mode of Truth" by Blue King Brown. You're listening to Green Left Radio. <laughs> You're just listening to Moment of Shroof by, um, Blue King Brown. Now it's time to go into some other news stories. Um, so the other meaning, the other big thing that, um, kind of happened, uh, in, in politics today was, um, there was this, there was apparently a big, there was a big, um, climate change conference, uh, known as Comp 28 where all these uh ruling class it was the it's basically the united um um, nations climate change summit um it was actually held in the united arab emirates which was sort of a bit ironic in a lot of ways um in fact um one of the things as well is (laughs) me and my partner we actually kind of looked up the um looked up the kind of advertising for the for the for the, for Dubai in the United, um, in, around COP28. And there was basically all this sort of greenwashing around all these sort of sustain, uh, around all these sustainable things that they apparently offered for, for tourists who happened to be flying down as well, um, to meet for this, um, for this conference. Now, basically, I mean, the expectations, uh, there was real, there was no real expectations from climate change activists. In fact, Comp28 has sort of passed like a bit of a blimp, um, amongst the, amongst the kind of in, environmental, ecological, ecological circles. And, and, um, the, the, one of the things as well is, um, you know, the final, the final text, and in fact, it's almost like a parody. At least over 2,456 fossil fuel lobbyists actually attended the summit. <laughs> nearly four times as many as last year. And also all, our, all a lot of political leaders went and talked about you know there was a lot of um, performative kind of uh, sloganeering about how you know we have to we're gonna, we're committed to phasing out fossil fuels um, and we're committed to and fossil fuels have no place in our energy system in fact our environmental minister Chris Bowen actually all said that and proclaimed that at the summit but of course, the 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 ridiculousness of this as well is, as Mina Rahman of the Third World Network and Friends of the Earth Malaysia um, told Democracy Now! and this is reported in the Green Left article um, on the Comp 28 failure, you know, it's quite outrageous for the US, Canada, Australia, Japan, Germany, the European Union as a whole, one by one, stand up to say that the fossil fuel phase-out language is not there or it was insufficient and needs to be strengthened. They're sort of trying to... Like, they're trying to say... They're standing up for, um, for phasing out fossil fuels, but while domestically out there in their own governments are actually signing off on licenses for the expansion and the production of fossil fuels. In fact, this is like, this is actually the new climate denialism. And it, cause, you know, we've now progressed from, from all these capitalist countries saying things like, Oh, yeah. We, we, we don't want to we need fossil fuels and you know we need it for a thriving economy etc but now we have uh, these same capitalist countries saying yeah we need to get rid of fossil fuels but we're still going to sign off on them in, a, um, in our own policies and our own practice so it's it's quite ridiculous in a lot of ways um and of course the summit's fi- final text called for a transition away from fossil fuels but not a phase out and in fact, the alliance of small island states said it contained a litany of loopholes so yeah i think this is just like i think in a lot of ways this the cop28 um, summit is just was just a joke and in fact greta funberg has been quite you know what um, um in terms of speaking about previous sort of climate summits uh I always like the phrase that you use, which is, a, it's a load of blah, 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 blah. And I think, you know, we could summarize COP28 as being just another week of blah, blah. I guess just one last comment to just sort of make. I do notice that, you know, there's a lot of sort of well-meaning sort of climate activists who are, you know, rightfully kind of calling out Dubai as, you know, a big kind of exporter of, um, fossil fuels. It's, you know, it's a country whose wealth is literally made off the backs of, uh, off oil but I mean we can't necessarily just single out Dubai in, in a sense we, we have to also note that actually Australia is a bigger exporter of fossil fuel than fossil fuels than Dubai and I think you know these countries are all complicit um in you know accelerating the destruction of our planet and i think you know this needs to be opposed but i think rob also had something to say because there was actually uh there was actually a protest in response to cop 28 actually last saturday organized by extinction rebellion
3: oh yeah i'll get onto that jacob uh, just um oh, to to follow up on you know the, the big capitalists are the the, the largest attendees at uh, cop 28 i mean it's like the theater of the absurd isn't it it's a bit like um uh the the cops you know being the people who conduct an inquiry into police violence or or um, the big capitalists being uh the ones who uh are the most uh numerous of people conducting an inquiry into uh exploitation of workers it really is absurd but i don't know you know that's the level of politics today, that uh, and and the level of the power of the capitalists that they can get away with this. But there is protest. There is protest. Uh, please forgive my sledgehammer I- irony here. Uh, our friends, the the coppers, uh, were there at the Extinction Rebellion protest, and I, I was just walking past completely by accident and going home at Flinders Street. And um, the Extinction Rebellion has uh, a lot of young people. With a history going back to before the first lockdown, uh, of, uh, doing pretty radical action. And there they were sitting on the, uh, intersection of Flinders Street and Swanson Street in the rain, I might add. The rain didn't seem to, um, deter any of these people. Um, there's, um, quite a history going back to before the first lockdown. Of the, uh, Victorian police force, our, our friends and protectors, going in there quite hard, uh, against Extinction Rebellion. So I think, I think they have a, a very interesting relationship. And there they were, uh, one by one, uh, 150 to 200 people, uh, were lifted up by, um, these, well, they looked quite military. Six police, in formation, would march in from the uh, um, extremities of the protest, would pick on one of the protesters, lift them up, and accompany them to uh, their little uh, processing centre for arrest. And, you know, I met quite a few of the people who were arrested afterwards in Young and Jackson, and, um, you know, th- it, it was just like a ritual. But, you know, I was just on the side taking photographs, and and to see six, co- what was it was six, always six. Uh, what is the significance? Half a dozen? I really don't quite get it. They were absolutely in in military formation, absolutely as straight as you could imagine, arms length, and all that kind of stuff. It was uh, worse than theatre of the absurd. It was it was quite scary. So it was very intimidatory. To the protesters, the young protesters, but I think they're used to it. This is this is what they expect from the police. I want to contrast that with the um, Palestine demonstrations, um, which happen every Sunday uh, here in Melbourne, every weekend all over the world. Here uh, in Melbourne, there's plenty of police plenty of police. They keep photographing me and everyone else all the time, and I sort of, you know, make the joke that they've got 33 years of photographs of me uh, in the ASIO files, and I'd like to have a look at them, because I want to see how well I've aged over the years. Um, And anyway, so... The attitude of the police on the Palestine demonstrations is completely different. They're, they they look a bit threatening and they take photos, but they don't go in. They could, but they don't. The Palestinian leadership and the Palestinians themselves are extremely disciplined in terms of not being violent. I looked very, very carefully, and in these last seven weeks, um, uh, as a sort of semi-official observer, I never once saw anything that remotely resembled violence. But why the uh, different attitude by the police to the environment protesters compared to the Palestinians. I can only assume that this is direction from high command. There must be a, a very strong political element to this. They wouldn't dare touch a Palestinian. They will be hit hard by, you know, it could be Albo, it could be even Dutton, former police officer. Um, I think they, they would think that this was a very dangerous thing for them.
0: Hmm. Yeah, thanks for that, Rob. Um, I'll I would possibly add some comments, but we've just got to go play a quick announcement and get started for our first live interview of the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM.
4: Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR's a bloody good place to start. What your is
2: we we've got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more problems.
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free R eight five five AM. And um You're listening to Community Radio
4: Three C R 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 Three
0: C R Three C R eight Fifty
4: Five AM
0: We're joined today by Um Graham Matthews who is the Social Alliance spokesperson for disability rights, and he's also been quite a regular kind of guest on our program. And we generally have had Graham on to, you know, talk about the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS. Um, so good morning, um, Graham.
1: Hi, Jacob. How are you?
0: Yeah, pretty good. Um, so um, I guess to kind of start off a bit um, the kind of discussion... Um, There was a report on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, um, review, which was a review, and it was published on December the 7th, and you wrote in your Green Left article that it was difficult reading for many people with um, disability, um, including yourself, and I guess, what can you tell us about this review that has happened?
1: It's... Um, it's very interesting. The uh, NDIS review was set up in October last year. The idea behind it initially was to try to reform NDIS, at least what it stated, its stated aim, to put participants, the uh, persons with disability, back at the centre of NDIS and to try to combat some of the um, indifference, the bureaucracy and... Um, um, hard edges of NDIS. Uh, then in April this year, the uh, the federal government uh, decided that it needed to make significant cuts to the um, uh, to the cost of NDIS to substantially reduce the uh, the growth curve, as they say, of um, NDIS funding. Uh, it's currently at around thirteen percent a year, so the uh, the cost of NDIS grows by that amount. Um, and they want to reduce it to no more than 8% uh, by um, uh, 2026, I think it is. So, unfortunately, the, um, in a sense, the, albeit that um, there are all these sort of um, happy and jolly um, uh, updates continually sent by uh, the, um, Lisa Paul and uh, Bruce Bonnie hady the, uh, the chairs of the NDIS review, to those of us who subscribed um, to their updates, Uh, The reality is that um, the purpose of the NDIS review was was derailed from its initial ideas and really uh, refashioned as a cost-cutting exercise, and that's what it appears to um, have been. Um, And so it's very difficult reading in the sense that um, not only that it foreshadows um, what could be quite significant cuts to the funding of NDIS, which will mean significant cuts for the support that uh, people with disability can expect in the future, um, but also the, um, the, 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 the huge lack, um, you know, extraordinary lack of detail. Um, this is a review which was um, fast-tracked, pushed, um, and has all these, foreshadows all these major changes for NDIS, most of which um, it doesn't provide any real detail for. Um, so that that's what, in my opinion, makes it very difficult reading for uh, people with disability.
0: Hmm. I want to come into um, one of the kind of sections, um, talking a bit about some of the impacts and what you can kind of get from the review, because, um, and I'll also kind of make a comment, um, especially since this is sort of a topic that, you know, I'm quite, passionate, um, I'm quite interested in, but yes. basically... Um, you kind of wrote about the kind of impacts that this might have on, on children with, with autism. Um, cause I guess one sort of observation I just want to make, um, is, you know, one of the things about this whole question of, uh, sustainability, um, and the NDIS is you're, you have this sort of very kind of bureaucratic kind of procedure in terms of, in terms of how the state defines disability and also often um, children with autism and those with, uh, you know, who are neodivergent are often not um, acknowledged as, as being truly authentically kind of disabled, um, which is kind of like the argument to sort of make cuts. So I guess I want to kind of hear about, you know, what are some of the impacts on children with autism, which apparently there is um, quite a lot that this NDIS review has to say.
1: It would appear it would appear that's the case. So, um, kids with autism make up uh, a large proportion. Uh, it's somewhere around about a hundred and uh, at least young people make up around about one hundred and fifty thousand of the six hundred and ten thousand. So roughly a quarter uh, of all people on NDIS and a substantial number of those are um, kids diagnosed with autism. So um, and and really quite severe autism. The um, the NDIS review recommends the uh, the scrapping of um, uh, the, the 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 current situation where a diagnosis, um, so a diagnosis of more or less severe autism, will automatically guarantee you access to NDIS, and replacing that with functional assessment, so that um, every um, it, it won't will no longer be enough for a specialist to diagnose a person with um, you know, more or less severe autism, uh, for them to, um, to gain access to the NDIS, they will have to go through really quite an intrusive um, process of a functional assessment um, carried out by a person called a needs assessor. Um, and again, there's very limited detail at this stage of what this will entail. But just that the, uh, the the frequently asked questions included with the review indicate that the uh, functional um, sorry, the uh, the needs assessor will spend a long time with the uh, the the person who's applying for NDIS, um, possibly over days, um, for, for many hours to make an assessment as to, in the first instance, whether they are, and should be entitled to um, receiving NDIS an NDIS package. For those who are assessed as not being severe enough or functionally impaired enough. Uh, and again, there's no indication as to uh, where this particular line will be drawn. Um, there's this idea of foundational support. Um, and again, there is absolutely no um, clarity as to what foundational supports will actually entail. Um, there's some vague idea that it may be um, further funding for assistance at schools um, or indeed um, uh, childcare. Um, early learning uh, centres and so forth, but there is absolutely no detail as to how much funding will be applied, how much support will be provided to individuals. And as I was talking to um, one of my providers, my physiotherapist um, yesterday afternoon, who treats quite a number of um, children with autism, um, you know, under NDIS currently, and he says, well... How are they going to make an assessment of um, a child between one and two years old? Mm. Um, how are they going to do a functional assessment on a child of that age who's um, who's obviously not yet um, developed speech? It, it becomes um, absurd. The entire process um, becomes completely self-defeating for uh, people with disability. But it is it is driven, and I think you made this point very clearly, by um, an attempt to to really reduce costs. Um, And unfortunately, this Labor government is um, absolutely passionate about one thing, and that's bringing in a a balanced or surplus budget. And everybody else can frankly go and get fucked. And pardon my French, but that's how it feels. Hmm.
0: And um, I guess I want to kind of, um, there's other two other sort of sections. I want to kind of hear about the kind of question around the ongoing needs assessment, which is probably one of those aspects about the NDIS that can be quite, Quite challenging for, especially for people with disability, because you you know it's basically a very bureaucratic kind of process of actually assessing, you know, the level of kind of service and care that you require. But also, apparently, um, you also wrote in the article that the NDIS review is going to continue to recommend people aged 65 and over be excluded from from the scheme. So I kind of want to hear some of the comments about that.
1: Yeah. So maybe the second one first. Uh, Yes. So the uh, the NDIS will uh, the, the NDS review does continue to recommend that um, persons over 65 um, with disability not be eligible. Uh, this doesn't mean, at least at this stage, that um, people, when they turn 65, will be turfed off, um, albeit that um, I think there is a continual... Um, there is an ongoing anxiety among those of us who are heading in that direction with age. But, um we, there may be some decision at a later point to do so. But certainly, um, those who, for those who develop disability after 65, um, and it is um, a, a significant number of the, um, the, the something like 4 million um, Australian residents who do live with a disability are over 65. That if it is developed after 65, um, you know, 65 plus one day, then uh, you will not be eligible at all for NDIS. On your first point uh, regarding um, ongoing functional assessments, so again, um, the um, cu- the current situation is that um, every time your review comes up, you need to get reports from your various um, providers so your various treating specialists as to why you, you need ongoing support and making an assessment of, um, of how much support you may need. Uh, in many cases, that um, also includes a, um, a functional assessment um, carried out by an occupational therapist. Um, but under the current system, at least you have choice, choice and control over that, so you can choose who the, um, the occupational therapist is who conducts that. Um, generally speaking, somebody who is at least familiar with your situation... Um, so, so in my case, um, it's somebody that I've, um, um, you know, dealt with over a number of years who has clarity over my um, uh, my particular disability and the impacts on my life. Um, what the NDIS review foreshadows is that um, uh, NDIS, rather than having your um, uh, your supports, your providers providing this evidence and. Uh, using that as the basis, the evidence base for an assessment of what you need in an ongoing way, but it will simply be some individual um, who is trained in something um, it's not clear what with some disability experience as the, um, the FAQs say uh, who will be come to your house, spend possibly days watching uh, watching you and, and assessing your needs in it without reference, without necessary reference to anything that your providers say, and will then issue you with what's described as a reasonable and necessary budget. Now, again, the, um, the, the review foreshadows amendments to the NDIS Act, to the legislation. Currently, um, every need, so every part of your need, so for myself, for instance, um, I receive funding for core support, so things like... Um, assistance uh, from support workers, but also uh, capacity building, so things like um, uh, physiotherapy, um, uh, exercise physiology, psychology, for instance. Um, And each one of those particular supports is assessed independently. And if NDIS and its wisdom decides to uh, not fund any of those, um, then I have a basis to appeal, um, up to including the um, uh, Administrative Appeals Tribunal or whatever it becomes whatever its name will be, after um, the Labor Party finishes its changes to that body, um, to, you know, call for um, an increase in that particular area. Now, the legislation will change that so that um, the reasonable and necessary term is applied to the budget as a whole, which will mean that um, effectively you get given a sum of money and um, the, the review bodies will not be able to... Examine that as to whether each particular support is sufficient. It's simply based on um, a financial metric. So again, it's a um, uh, placing downward pressure on the cost of NDIs and effectively reducing uh, the scale of everybody's plan.
0: All right. Well, thanks for that, Graham. Um, I was just going to go. We might have to conclude with some final comments because we just got to get have a, we have another interview coming up quite shortly. So, okay. do you have any like final comments you'd like to make,
1: Graham? just that i think um this uh, there's a lot of devil in the detail and that hasn't yet come out um what is distressing is the fact that the um the, the, the major peak bodies uh, which support and um people with disability haven't come out against this review there is a great deal of anxiety expressed with um, many of the comments made um by these bodies but they haven't yet come out against this and i think unfortunately um it's the desire to remain in the tent and uh, remain relevant. And it's something which the Labor Party is far better at than the Coalition. The changes that the Labor Party are foreshadowing with this review really do closely track uh, changes which were foreshadowed by um, um, Stuart Robert um, under the Coalition a number of years ago. Um, but unfortunately, the, um, the, the pushback uh, from civil society is nowhere near uh, what it was um, uh, when the, the Liberal Party, the coalition government, brought this up. And I think it's very important that um, people with disability don't accept uh, the uh, the pushback from, from the Labor Party on NDIS and fight for their rights.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much, Graham. And, yeah, we'll continue to have discussions with you um, following any kind of updates on this, um, including, you know, talking more more detail about alternative de- uh, alternatives and demands we need to be putting on the government in regards to the NDIS. But thank you very much, um, Graham.
1: I appreciate it, Jacob. Thanks for the call.
0: All right. We're just speaking with Graham Matthews, who's the disability spokesperson for Socialist Lines, um, about the recent um, NDIS review that's being reviewed by the Albanese government. Um, and it's sort of... I think it's sort of funny, like, you know, if the if the Liberal Party were actually proposing, you know, significant sort of cuts to the NDIS. Um, the Labour government would in opposition would basically be trying to argue that, you know, we'll be we we would oppose these cuts. But of course they they kind of do and the fact that the Labour the same Albanese government is actually trying to implement these and push it through using a lot of euphemisms and, um, and, you know, language, uh, to kind of make it seem better than what it actually is. You know, I think it it's quite outrageous in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, I'll just go play, um, a quick announcement. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM.
6: Dear 3 listeners, Tamil Voice is holding our annual Radiothon on Christmas Day, Monday, December 25th, from 9am to 4pm, to raise funds for disadvantaged Victorian Tamil students in need for higher education. It will be a great day of broadcasting with Tamil news, views, songs, local announcements, children's programs and interviews with students who receive support from local and foreign community leaders. To donate, call the station on zero three nine four one nine eight three seven seven during the radiothon to talk with our volunteers and tune in for the of Voices annual radiothon Monday december twenty fifth between nine AM and four PM.
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on freecr cr 855 AM. And, um, now it is actually time for the Green Left activist calendar. Now, things are sort of, are slightly winding up, so there's a bit, there's a bit less events than, um, than usual. Um, but there is going to be a film screen tonight at 6.30pm with a meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre. Um, it's a fundraiser for Green Left and it's a Palestinian, um, documentary titled The Land Speaks Arabic. And I guess one thing about this documentary is that it features, um, interviews with with people, um, with survivors of, of Nakba and, um, and actually, you know, p- you know, people who actually have memories of what Palestinian society was like before uh, the catastrophe known as Nakba in 1948. And then on, um, on Sunday, there's going to be a rally, immediate ceasefire in Gaza now. And that's going to be happening at Saturday, December the 16th at the office of, uh, uh, of the ALP MP. Kate Watts at 36 Bon Burgundy Street in Heidelberg, and then on Saturday, December the 16th, um, as well, from 1 to 4 p.m., there's going to be uh, a bu- there's going to be a barbecue um, for Social Science End of Year Barbecue. Mark the end of year of struggles and prepare for the next. At, and this will be at the Robinson Reserve 104B Renard Street. Um, if you're interested in attending, you can text me at 0458958385. Then also happening on Saturday, there's going to be a Gaza family diary. We're reading um it's going to be feature Sawa Sabawi, um, you know, reading from some of the WhatsApp messages that she's been receiving from her family members back home in Gaza. And that's gonna be happening at the Lamana Lamama Courthouse at three four nine Drummond Street in Carlton, um and from two to four PM. Tickets might be sold out for this event because it is a ticketed event. Um but yeah, go you can go check um check Search Gaza Family Diary to see if there's any tickets available. Then, of course, on Sunday, um, the Palestinian protests are going to continue. So there'll be a protest at 12 p.m. at the State Library, um, this Sunday. And then there'll be a protest, um, then there'll be a protest in Hume at, uh, demanding Hume Council stand up for Palestine. And that'll be happening at, on Monday, 18th of, of December at 6 p.m. at the Town Hall, 10 Dubola Road in Broadmeadows. Um, so yeah, I'll just go, um, I'll just go play, um, a quick announcement and we'll go on to our, our next interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left.
6: 3CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are.
0: you're listening to green left radio on freesia 855 am and um we're very happy to be joined by damoon uh jehani um from the kurdish iranian community based in nam melbourne and of course damoon's actually been a previous guest on our program as well and you know is a very um is a very big has been a very active activist um in solidarity with with the Kurdish struggle and, um, the Iranian community, um, especially in terms of the mass protests that, um, that happened last year in Iran. Um, so yeah, good morning, but, um, Moon.
7: Good morning, Jacob. Uh, nice to be back again as
0: well. Yeah. Um, it's great to have you back. And I guess, um, we sort of would have you, um, join us, I guess, for, um, for our discussion a bit because, um, I think you've been following, um, some of the politics, I guess, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I guess we want to, we've obviously seen this explosion of, um, you know, um, Palestinian activism in the, in the global north. But I guess one of the things that's actually quite an interesting note is, I guess, how has politics in the Middle Eastern region been shaped by the events in Palestine? And just to kind of add one extra comment is, um, you know, before the kind of, before I guess October 7, um, and the genocide in Palestine that's currently taking place, there was actually, I guess, a trend of a lot of the kind of Middle Eastern kind of states normalising relations yep. with Israel. And I guess I want to kind of hear a bit of some of your comments, I guess, along those of responding to that actually as well, mm. but also how these events have been shaping politics in the Middle East.
7: Yeah, for sure. Well, just like you said, Jacob, there has been uh, some reapproachment with Israel uh, from a lot of these Middle Eastern countries. Um, you know, starting with Egypt, um, back, you know, decades ago, uh, till you know, even countries like Saudi Arabia started. And, you know, we have uh, Turkey, that is a country that pays lip service under Erdogan to the Palestinian cause, uh, but maintains, continues to maintain to be one of Israel's closest trading partners uh, and for military stuff as well. So there has been a reapproachment with Israel, and... Um, and when October 7th kicked off again, having uh, the brutal response we saw by Israel and Gaza uh, and even in the West Bank, the explosion of protests. Like, uh, we've seen, you know, we beat the protests together in Melbourne, we've seen thousands of people here, but even in the Middle East, in countries like Turkey, in countries like Saudi Arabia, it has forced a lot of these governments to reconsider their position with Israel. Uh, all of a sudden this capital's tendency that Israel provided certain uh, economic benefits to them and being trading partners and normalising relations with them was being met with the religious factor of the conflict, but also what their own constituents, what their own people demand, right? So it's caused a giant shift in that. Whether it will bear something fruitful in the long term, whether it won't just be temporary and after... A year of a reapproach of Israel. Who knows? But at least we're seeing some action being taken and a reversal of its reapproachment uh, in order to demand further Palestinian rights. Hmm.
0: And I guess um, I want to kind of. Um... Can you guys? Um, you mentioned, I um, some of the kind of mass protests, and I guess where have um, where have some of the pro- um, protests in the Middle East for Palestine been quite prevalent? And I guess mm. what has been um, what has, I guess, been kind of the position of some of the governments in response to the protests? Because I have yep. heard of some repression of some of these protests um, by by these states, even mm. if even if in a lot of ways they actually symbolically support um, profess support for Palestine.
7: Yeah. Well, no, I remember seeing images, for instance, from uh, Egypt as well, uh, where you had uh, these massive protests, but uh, small and small sort of little clashes with police at certain points, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's typically it's the countries that we've seen that have historically had um, more anti-Israel rhetoric, such as Qatar or Iran, that have you know, being a lot more open and, um, uh, yeah, like open to the process and stuff so off. But some other countries where it gets a bit more skeptical, uh, with the relations, which, you know, can be Turkey at times and Egypt and so forth. Uh, we have seen a bit of wish washing, um, I think with this as well. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess, um, that goes into kind of the next question. Um, I want to kind of hear a bit more comments about Iran, because I think Iran is possibly, you know, what you've been following probably the most, but also probably represents this central contradiction the most. But, you know, what are your comments, I guess, on how countries such as Iran have, in a sense, they profess support for Palestine, um, yeah. but, of course, they've also used it. As a very much as cover for their repression, um, domestically. To the point where there's a bit of, co- there's a bit of a contradictory response because I'm, i actually looked a bit of a report, um, you know, there was a Palestine protest in, uh, Palestine solidarity sort of protest in Iran. But of course there's also, you know, a counter protester, possibly also clearly opposed to the Iranian regime. Um, who also did a pro Israel counter protest that was sort of, um, that was sort of ca- um, that was sort of a bit of like a counter protest. So, yeah, what are some of those dynamics, um, that in, that occurring in Iran?
7: Yeah, I'll tell you something, Jacob. It is a very strange time to be pro Palestinian in the Iran diaspora. Um, so with the Islamic regime themselves, I mean, it was only months ago that they were literally murdering children in the street, people as young as 11, like Kian. Um, and as we know, Masa Amin or Gina Amini as well. And so I've got a friend now in Iran. Uh, he goes to university there. He says he can't even enter his university without stepping on the Israeli flag. Like, they've just plastered the flag all over the ground. And the Islamic regime constantly, on a day-to-day basis, uh, talks about Palestine, talks about liberating Palestine, talks about the Zionist uh, apartheid regime, the occupiers. But this really falls on deaf ears to a lot of people in Iran when that same government murders them, when that same government months ago was killing them out in the open streets. So when this conflict did first start, we did see some footages from Iran where people chanted, um, my life neither for Palestine or Yemen, only for Iran. And there was some chants that did seem a bit more anti-Palestinian as well. But the content of his chants, they're not meant to be like, we're against Palestine. It's more so that uh, we're against the government, constantly talking about Palestine while they continue to murder and kill us. And something fascinating I actually saw was a week ago, uh, there's this great Instagram page called Kiana Tribute that uh, take pictures of graffiti around Iran. And it had a collection of six or seven different graffiti designs that have just exploded inside Iran. And it's been slogans like uh, Palestinians and Iranians both facing uh, oppression, Palestinians by Israel, of course, and Iranians by the Islamic regime. But even in these difficult times, we have seen a discourse come up that have recognised both the Palestinians and the Iranians facing repression, regardless of the government's supposed support uh, for the Palestinians. In diaspora, this has played out differently. We've seen... A lot of the pro-Zionist protests is seen in conjunction with monarchists being held all around the world. Um, yeah, it's a very strange time <laughs> to be pro-Palestinians for us.
3: Yeah, uh hi Damoun. I'm I'm Rob Zaki and um, even just in this short interview I've learned quite a lot uh, about stuff in, in in Iran with regards to Palestine. Uh I did have a question for you though. Um, uh, can you cuz you've obviously been following this really closely. Uh, can you give some examples of any concrete solidarity actions? between Iranians and Palestinians, and I'm particularly interested in working-class action and working-class unity uh, of Iranian workers and Palestinian workers. Do you know anything about that sort of stuff?
7: Within Iran, we haven't heard too much. Um, There has definitely been instances of solidarity. So, for instance, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, Nadeghis Mohammadi, who's currently in prison in Iran... She actually put out quite a few pro-Palestinian statements recently, and even one calling for a ceasefire. Um, And we have seen uh, statements of ceasefire being echoed uh, by a lot of workers' unions and so forth as well. But workers' unions in Iran are now in a very strange time, but they've sort of gone back into hiding. Uh, A lot of the big ones as well, because of the repression that they've just faced the past few months. So they haven't been too active. Uh, publicly, just in general. Um, other than the pro-government ones, which, you know, will just issue the state government lines, the radical ones like Haftap and stuff have sort of uh, sitting back a bit. Uh, at least I haven't seen sort of any statements from them uh, recently.
0: Hmm. And I guess I want go, um, to go into a bit of a, a kind of last question, and you, there'll be some room for some final comments later. Wanna, I guess in terms of this discussion where we're kind of talking about, you know, the how Middle Eastern politics is shaped, has been shaped by the kind of events um, in, of October. The other kind of um, point I think we can't sort of forget about, I guess, is the important elephant in the room, which is um the role of US and Western kind of imperialism. And um there's actually, you know, one of the one of the things there's been a lot of there was c there's been a comment being thrown around by Joe Biden, which, you know, he said in the um the eighties, which is if that there was if there there wasn't an Israel, uh the US would sort of have to invent it. And of course <laughs> I wanna keep going to hear your comments about, you know, the actual role that the United States is actually plays in the Middle Eastern region and especially kind of how it's actually divided um, the region Um, because, you know, when we, because one of the, because I guess one comment I'll just make is like one of the kind of contradictory sort of illusions that I sort of notice, you know, amongst, amongst some people who, you know, obviously are sincerely sort of supporting the, the uprising in, in Iran is sometimes there can be a bit of this sort of illusion in actual, you know, US sort of liberal democracy, uh, etc., when actually in a lot of ways the US is directly responsible for, you know, why these countries in the Middle East are actually ruled by authoritarian sort of regimes. It's not because mm. they're ruled by so-called backwards Middle Eastern Arabs,
7: no, that's 100% right, Jacob, that last statement. I couldn't agree more with you. Like, we saw the decades of sort of imperialism uh, played out by America and the U.S. USSR, and now Russia uh, was just um, uh, building up and uh, uh, funding and supporting authoritarian regimes in these mindless proxy wars. Um, and, I mean, America's in that weird place where it does have relations to countries like Saudi Arabia, but it is or maybe was quite close to, um, but at the same time, yes, uh, there is Israel, sort of like a pawn in the Middle East, uh, where the military-industrial complex of the United States grinds its gears, um, and that sort of remains a bulwark against uh, Russia, uh, against, and more importantly, uh, the Islamic regime of Iran, uh, against uh, Syria, uh, um, Bashar Assad, and so this plays into that as well, and and it's been horrible. Like, you know, we finally got Australia to vote for a ceasefire, which for me it was is it unbelievable to think that would actually happen. And to see the video clip from a few, day, few days ago, the UN, where America is the only one holding up its hand to vote against something like that. Well, that's a consequence of this sort of foreign policy where one country, this, uh, one of the, uh, great powers of this world has just at its hands of disposal to prevent any sort of ceasefire just for its geopolitical interests, well, that's one of the poisons of capitalism. Um, that's one of its unfortunate consequences. And, you know, a lot of anti-imperialists will say, well, look, there, uh, Iran and stuff um, need to be there in order to fight against the United States. But then that's also the other way of that. That also goes into the other direction. It's, the same thing, it's still imperialism as well. So yeah, that's just our little difficult world, I guess.
0: Um, Rob, did you have a question to sort of ask? Or maybe we can I'll just go, maybe we can just go um, I think this has been a very good interview, kind of Damoon, and um, we're going to actually finish up by playing some Middle Eastern music, but do you have any final final, um, comments that you'd like to make?
7: I just thought it's important to be intersectional that we can be against the Islamic regime of Iran, that we can be against uh, America, we can be against uh, for instance, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, but yeah, but our oppressors are all around the world and we've got to fight them equally as
0: well. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Demune. Um, and I think, yeah, this has been a kind of very important discussion. And um, yeah, I think I just want to rec- um, also make a plug that I think everyone needs to attend uh, the Palestine protest that's happening this Sunday at 12 p.m. at the State Library. Cheers. See you later. Yeah. Alright, so we're just speaking to, um, Damun about, you know, having a bit of a discussion around how Middle Eastern politics has been, um, shaped and, um, being impacted by the events that have been occurring in Palestine right now. Alright, now I'm just gonna go, well, um, Rob, do you want to sort of introduce the sort of track that you, we were gonna play?
3: Oh, well, I just thought, um, given, uh, who our guests, uh, have been, um i sort of dug up some uh egyptian music um it's not particularly political uh cuz i i got an arabic translation but it's just some love song and it's it's also the rhythms uh of the music and the instruments used just really make me very very excited so we'll just um listen to a bit of this track by Ankam and i'm not going to attempt to pronounce i know i will uh lay Sebtaha, something like that okay
0: All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on freeCR 855 AM. And we're getting right into the um, end of our program. Um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in and um, i think just rob wanted to make one quick plug
3: oh yes well you know this is the green left radio show uh and green left um as if you haven't worked it out is a vital social change project aiming to make all content available online without paywalls no corporate sponsors or advertising we rely on support and donations from people like you who are listening and for just uh, five Dollars per month you can get the green left digital edition in your inbox uh, and ten dollars per month get the above and the print edition delivered to your door you can also add a donation uh, to support us by choosing the solidarity option of twenty dollars per month uh, and uh, yeah subscribe to 3cr which um, unashamedly supports all left-wing movements
0: all right. Well, thank you very much um, for that, Rob. And yeah, thank all our listeners and guests for being our program. Um, this program will be uploaded as a podcast on freecr.org.au. Um But also, we will be we'll have another live program next Friday. But I think the following Friday will be on summer break. So yeah, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au support or free call one 634 206
5: Arise you workers from yes. your slumbers, arise you prisoners of want, for reason in revolt now thunders and it last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The The commies commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.